It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh, and I am extremely excited right now to be joined by Brian C. Johnson. He's the CEO of Equality Illinois, an activist, and the author of the new book, Our Fair Share, which looks at how America's economy doesn't so much work for working families and what we might be able to do to, to fix it. Brian, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Jess, thanks so much for having me. I have to admit, I, I, I peeked at your Twitter feed before um, before we started on air, and I see that you are coming to me from your garage in, that in, is, a, parked, in a parked car. That is correct. When, when there's a holiday house full of 12 people, this is the, the only quiet place I could find. So. It, you sound great. Your audio is absolutely perfect. I just Wonderful. love- I love our little pandemic hacks for getting around doing work while surrounded by friends and family. And I think it's oh my gosh. Really, Absolutely. really fun to share them. It's one of the only things that like brings me joy is the, the kids and the dogs wandering into the Zoom shots. Um, okay, but I love this book and I love this idea. Um, so I'm going to let you set it up because I'm sure you will do it better than I do. We can talk about every way that the American economy has failed us, the, the income gap, the wealth gap, the way we talk about the fundamentals of the economy being strong or the stock market when we know that that's not translating to people's everyday lived reality. But you actually have a solution for all of that. Um, tell me about the citizen's dividend. Sure. Um, the citizen dividend is simply put... Uh, would be a 5% distribution of corporate and business profits every year to every American. It's premised on the deep understanding that there is wealth we all own together as Americans. Right. We own our natural resources, our constitution and legal systems, our infrastructure. And when a business uses somebody else's wealth to create value, Part of that new value is owed back to those original owners. And so I simply say there is a slice of business profits every single year, which is owed to every American as our right because of the wealth that we all own together, which was used to create those profits. Isn't that how our tax system is supposed to work? I think there is some overlap with tax. I mean, I think I think of tax as a transaction that says, you know, we're going to invest in government and social services mm -hmm. um, because that makes us all stronger as a society. And believe me, like, I believe we need a robust tax system. I believe businesses should be paying um, their fair share of taxes. Any taxes would be a nice start. Any taxes. <laughs> um, but I think this goes even deeper to say this is not just a transaction between businesses and the government. This is not just meant to, to fund services that, that are important to our society. The, the citizen dividend is premised on a understanding of our right as each American to share in our collective prosperity. So how does this differentiate from like the universal basic income that we have started to hear about if Americans are just getting a check every year? Like what is, yeah. what is, what is different about the citizen dividend. Sure. I mean, this is an exciting time for guaranteed income programs broadly. So that that's the 
guaranteed income is any type of, of kind of check or, or payment somebody would get um, unrelated to their personal labor or investments. The most famous of this is, is the universal basic income, which is premised on the idea um, that um, every person in this society would be given enough money to meet their basic needs, their housing needs, their healthcare needs, their, uh, their food needs, so that they can choose to work in areas that most inspire them. Um, there's lots of other types of programs, the guaranteed income pilots that are popping up in cities across the country, which give small payments to, uh, to a fraction of their citizens mm -hmm. every month. You know, I think the main difference between the citizen dividend and a universal basic income would be twofold. One is, as it's currently structured, and this could change, a citizen dividend is not meant to meet all the basic needs someone might have. Right. And number two, a citizen dividend is grounded in this understanding that we all have a right to our collective prosperity. It's not viewed so much as just a, a benefit. Are we talking about here? Like when I think about the profits that businesses make versus the returns that people who don't own those businesses see, that's a that's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I mean, how what was what was Jeff Bezos' profit margin last year? A, 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 is it a trillion or is it several I, hundred billion? I, I mean, God that's knows. like a, God that's, knows. that's that's the that's the GDP of a, a decent sized country, right? There. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it all depends on what percentage you use and how you define profit. But, but I'll just use a basic, basic number to get this started. If we used 5% of all business income, not excluding the, the sole proprietors, if we looked at 5% of all business income reported to the IRS in 2015, that would mean every American would be getting a check, uh, an annual check of just under $600 a year or for a family of four, that would be a little over $2,000. So that is equivalent just to, to size that up. That's equivalent for the median family's rent for two months, yep. the median family's groceries for two months, the median family's childcare for almost two months. So, you know, it's certainly not going to um, set people free to, uh, uh, to do, uh, you know, just write the, the next great American novel with their time, <laughs> but, it, but it is going to meet the needs of most middle uh, and and working class Americans uh, in a really important way. No, I mean we we know that that forty percent of the country can't handle a four hundred dollar emergency, uh, something right. goes wrong with the car, medical emergency, whatever. That forty percent of this country cannot meet just that four hundred dollar requirement to get out of whatever emergency situation they were in before they experience homelessness or before. <laughs> This would obviously alleviate that in a very meaningful way. It's is anyone is anyone taking it seriously? Like, do you have any lawmakers on board? Are there people who are like, yeah, let's do this? Uh, the uh, we are building enthusiasm. The book just came out uh, just a few months ago, and I will say, right now we're having conversations like this across the country and across the state, and I think the energy is there. For me, the importance. Uh, before we just, you know, uh, in my in my day job as a as an LGBTQ activist, we spent a lot of time writing and pushing policy. For me, what I wanted to do on this was something different. I wanted to really make sure that the the soil was fertile before we started, uh, you know, hammering out a policy in any particular state or across the country. I wanted to have conversations like this 
that really grounded our collective understanding that we have a right to share in our national prosperity. And from that, I hope we, we find the right place to begin piloting this. So what, what do you say to critics who claim this is socialism or like, you know, eventually you're going to be taking this idea to, let's say you start with the Democratic lawmakers. I'm just on a hunch that they're going to be more receptive to this idea than the Republican ones. But like just this week, we had Joe Manchin saying that the child tax credit shouldn't be extended because people would just spend that money on drugs instead of their kids. How, how important is that kind of mindset as an obstacle to getting something like this done? Well, let's start with with what the most successful, longest standing guaranteed income program in America is, which is, uh, well, uh, is I think more of the Alaska Permanent Fund. Oh, Um, okay, Much smarter. All right. Do it. Right. So this was (laughs) this was passed um, by a Republican governor with a Republican legislature in the 1970s, implemented in the early 80s that says a slice of all oil and gas excise taxes will go into a state fund and every Alaskan will get a slice of of that payment. Um, This is one of the most popular programs in Alaska. And when you go back and and hear how Governor Republican, Governor Jay Hammond, who who, uh, shepherded this idea through, he was very clear this is not socialism. This is taking money, you know, owed to the everyday citizen, right back to the everyday citizen. It does not go to, to to fund more government or or to more robust social services, which I deeply believe we need to do. But right. this instead goes from businesses um, to owners of wealth that those businesses used uh, to create value. So it is the exact opposite of socialism. So so. I- one, I, 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 this, this tracks really well with something that I, I talk a lot about, about our, our charitable giving, which is that it is, it is great to build services. It is great to contribute to the building of services, but sometimes what people need is money to spend on the things that they particularly need. And it is really hard to fund charities that just give somebody 20 bucks. Like, yeah, I guess they might spend it on drugs. That's not really how people manage their money and if it is they need help not condemnation but they might need it for food they they might need it for child care they might need it for a decent shirt to wear to a job interview they might need it for all kinds of things that you define as frivolous before you send it to them that's sort of how we treat our taxes and our social safety net like we all have to give back to society but then we give back to an entity that decides what people need and maybe what they need is that bridge fixed but maybe what they need is to be able to buy christmas presents for their kid who lost a parent this year right. and right. and that we don't we don't we don't have any programs aside from the alaska permanent fund i believe that that do that we're starting to see some of those programs but you're right not not on a broad level i mean two of i think my favorite Uh, smaller pilots, and there were early ones, which was one in Stockton, California, which was really championed by the the charismatic mayor there, uh, Michael Tubbs, and then one in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, And the research out of both of these pilot programs showed that when you give people money, um, they're using it to uh, pay off debt, to meet yeah. basic needs, to invest in their future, right? To to pay for education. Um, I mean, uh, people working um, below living wage um, are smart about what their families need yes. uh, to make it through the year. 
I, and, I mean, this is, this is too big a question for any one person to answer, but I'm going to pose it anyway. Why is that so hard for people to understand? Why, mm. why is there so much demonization of people who are struggling um, and this expectation that they, they will be unable to, to spend that money in a healthy way? You know, I, I, I followed uh, in, in the book um, uh, a Catholic priest by the name of Cleet Kiley. Um, mm-hmm. He was born, um, gosh, almost 70 years ago in Chicago, he spent most of his career in Chicago. And watching him talk about his life as a, as a young boy growing up in Irish working class Chicago to entering the priesthood to, to now working as a labor and immigrant rights activist, I was really able to see a narrative unfold about our country kind of through his life experiences. You know, when we came out of World War II and the Great Depression, we were a country that believed our greatest strength was our ability to sacrifice together and take care of each other. And then the Cold War set through and and we needed a foil to be a foil to to the rise of, of, of communist Russia. And then with the fall of the, of the I'm sorry, with the, the Cold War, we, we kind of patted ourselves on the back and said, wow, what really makes us special is, is not our ability to take care of each other, but our refusal to be bound together. And I think that narrative, which is relatively recent, flies deeply in the face of our greatest strengths of our country. You know, when I go around and talk to people and I ask, tell me about a time when you were most proud to be an American, it is the times that we have come together across our differences to forge a common future. And so this relatively recent narrative that that we don't belong to each other, that we're not supposed to take care of each other, uh, is an assault to our deeper American story. I haven't heard anybody explain it that way before. And sometimes when I'm reading about some of the, the better moments of American history, or when I'm reading about like the victory gardens or the things that we all went through in, in World War II or coming out of the Great Depression, I, I read them through the lens of, I, I can't believe that that happened here. How did that happen? Why did that happen then, but this is happening now? And I haven't heard the Cold War global superpower explanation for our greatness as, as, uh, as an explanation. And I, I like it. It feels right. <laughs> it feels like we used to come together a lot more, at least. Yeah. I, I, but I mean, they, we whitewashed the hell out of American history. So maybe I'm reading stuff that didn't really happen. But it feels like there was a time in this country where great uh, community sacrifice was lauded. And now it is, it's vilified. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think your point is, is apt there, Jess, which is, you know, when I talk about the power of story, I don't ever want to suggest that we have ever consistently lived up to our, to our stories. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I do think it's important to say uh, and to claim uh, the power of, of what our stories once were. And, and when you hear Father Cleet talk about his working class neighborhood uh, in the 40s and 50s uh, and the stories that dominate on, on many of the, certainly the, the airwaves today, we, we see a real dissonance between uh, what I believe uh, makes America uh, strong and beautiful and, and vibrant, um, which is our incredible diversity and our willingness to care for each other. And, and what I think the other side suggests uh, makes America great, which is our refusal to be bound to each other. So as, as we watch negotiations continue around the Build Back Better agenda, um, the COVID stimulus payments, child tax credits, <laughs> what are your thoughts on, 
on the, the messaging that we're hearing, frankly, from Democrats and, and how can progressives better communicate why this stuff is so vital and what the benefits are? Yeah. Uh, so I would say, I think we need, uh, uh, we need two stories uh, to lend to this work. One is we have to make sure people know that the levels of inequality we are seeing now are different than anything we've yeah, seen over the past normal. century. Right. This is not normal. You know, when I started this book, I kind of thought, well, we always had inequality. Uh, it is it, it is rampant beyond measures that, that we have seen in a hundred years. I mean, you know, when my grandparents were working, CEOs took home 20 times the average worker. Now right. they take home 300 times the average worker. When my parents were a kid or kids, you know, the, the top 1% of earners earned less than half of what the bottom 50% took home. Now the top 1% takes home twice as much as the bottom half of earners. You know, when I was wow. a kid, uh, you know, uh, uh, people were earning, increasing their earnings at, at, at almost, you know, at every quintile at almost uh, consistent rates. Since I've been a kid, the bottom half of earners have not seen a real increase in their wages. So I think the first thing we have to say is this is not who we have been over the past century. And then I think the second thing is we need to tie it to our American values. If we are the country of e pluribus unum, a country that was formed on shared values, not a common country of origin or language or church, but of shared values, we need to lean into those shared values and begin taking care of each other. I mean, <laughs> I, at this point, we are so polarized. I feel like we have two separate countries of shared values. Like, I, I don't know that I can find a whole lot of shared values with folks who identify on the right in this country right now. And does that, does that doom this? Or are there enough of us who believe in that, that instead of a divided country, we have a united country that has a loud and vocal minority? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am not here to try to convince the furthest right 10 to 20% right. of Americans um, that they should believe in the greatness of our country by taking care of each other. But when I travel, certainly my state of Illinois, when I think about the places I have lived as a child, when I talk about more conservative or talk to more conservative and moderate families and workers, and I tell them the story that we are facing inequality like we haven't seen in a hundred years, that we have forgotten our great truth that our strength lies in our ability to take care of each other, and that we have a right to a share of our collective prosperity, I'm beginning to see people glob onto that in a really powerful way. So, you know, the Newsmaxes of the world and the far right <laughs> Fox News broadcasters of the world, I'm not going for that. Right. I, I'm trying to talk to the workers and the families and the small business owners um, that believe um, in, in our great potential as a country. I mean, frankly, I was shocked at how much attention and ink the universal basic income got when Andrew Yang made it an issue. I, I see lots of problems with a policy like that, although I think the good probably outweighs the bad. This seems to address the problems that I see in a universal basic income. Like I, I you know, I, I, have a, I have a decent job. I don't need a monthly check. Like I would rather that money go to somebody who, who totally does. And if I ever lose my job, I'd like to get it. But this I absolutely feel entitled to 5% of the profits that these businesses are making in this country because they're making it with the wealth of this country, with our That's wealth. Right. 
That's this, right. This feels like an idea that really could take hold. I, I hope that you have incredible luck with it in, in the next year. And I hope that everybody buys your book, which is, again, our fair share. Um, Brian C. Johnson, thank you so much for, for doing this work. This is fabulous. Jess, thanks for your time and happy holidays to you and your loved ones. We are wishing you a spectacularly wonderful holiday season or just a just a fine, okay holiday season and uh, hopefully a happier new year in 2022. We will see you then.